0: Well, good afternoon, Zoe Community Church. It's good to be with you this afternoon. My name is Kenny. I'm a pastoral resident here, and it's a blessing to bring the Word of God today because, you know, you didn't come to hear my anecdotes or hear anything really that I have to say. You've come to hear from God, that's why we come to church, not to hear the opinion of man, but to hear what God wants to say to each one of us today. So let's start off with a question before we get into the scripture. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you deserved more than you actually received? Did you think, or you were in a situation where you, where you thought there should be more coming to you than you actually received? I have a friend, we'll call him John to protect the innocent. Um, he told me about a time that he volunteered to help a friend move. Uh, it was a friend from church, somebody he didn't know that well, but uh, he was going to go with a couple of other guys and help load up that moving van because this family, they were a family of five, I think, they were planning on moving to another town, a town about an hour and a half away. So John showed up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday at their three or four bedroom house, and sure enough, there was a 30-foot moving van out front, which is a good sign, but there was nobody else outside. He walked up to the front door, knocked, and was let in by the the father of the household, and he was horrified by what he saw. He saw a normal house. It looked normal, not like they were about to move that day. Uh, I imagine there was china in the cabinets. There were throw pillows on the couch. There were no moving boxes. There was no tape. There was no nothing. And they were moving that day to another town. My friend John, being the good Christian man that he is, he didn't say anything. He didn't complain. He just got to work. Him and a couple of other volunteers got to work. They just started packing up the whole house, basically from ground zero, uh, packing it all up, getting it in that 30-foot moving van. They worked from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And just at about 5 p.m., they were done. They loaded up the van. He was tired. He was sweaty. Uh, and he turned around to the father of the household and he stuck out his hand about to say, God bless you, brother. Have a good life. Goodbye. And the father took his hand and said, John, thank you for your help today. But we don't know anybody in that town yet do you think that you could come help us unload the van too? And John, being the good Christian man that he is, he said, yes. So he got into his car uh, and followed the moving van an hour and a half to the other town and helped them move all the stuff into their new house as well. By the time he was rolling up to his own driveway, it was midnight. So think about that. He had worked for no pay, as a volunteer from 8 a.m. to 12 a.m. for nothing. I mean, maybe he got a couple of slices of pizza. I'm not sure. Uh, he got a couple of thank yous from that family. But how would you feel? How would you feel if you were John? Would you be frustrated? Would you be angry at how inconsiderate that family was to put you through so much? Did you feel like even though you had volunteered and planned to volunteer that you had right to a, some kind of compensation, some kind of recognition for how much you gave? I think I would feel that way. Now, uh, I used to live in kind of a college town, and this is where this friend John was from too, and there were people moving in and out all the time. And I would get emails regularly from people who needed help moving, and I must confess that sometimes... I would decide which one to help based on what food they were going to give to the helpers. Uh, coffee and donuts, like if there was no mention of food, man, sometimes I would just skip it over. I'm sorry. Coffee and donuts was good, but if they were offering pizza, man, I was there. Now, it's horrible. <laughs> you know, we're laughing about it, but that's really bad. That's not what I should be thinking about. How, how come even when we try to help people, sometimes even when we're trying to be generous... We're really just thinking about ourselves. Or we've got mixed motives and there's too much of us in that calculation. Even in social situations, so often we're not thinking about how we can serve other people but how we can better ourselves. We're so focused on the return on investment oftentimes. We think about ourselves when we should be thinking about others. Well, This afternoon, we're going to see Jesus addressing this selfish tendency. He's going to call us to think less of ourselves and to think more about God and others, even in social situations. And he's going to call us to live simple, humble, and generous lives. So we're continuing in our summer series this afternoon called Stories That Teach through some of the parables of Jesus, and we're going to be in Luke 14 today, Luke 14, 7 through 14. So please turn there. Luke 14, 7 to 14. Now, for context, I'm going to read from verse 1, and we'll talk a little bit about those opening verses, but we'll really focus on 7 to 14. So, Luke 14, 7 to 14, but starting in verse 1. I'll read it. One Sabbath. When he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching to us, and we see here that you invite us into lives of God-centeredness, selflessness, generosity, caring more about what you think of us than what other people think of us. So I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear. Please help me to communicate your message clearly, and we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've got two points to the sermon today. I hope that doesn't trip you up too much. Two points. The first one is receiving respect. Point number one, receiving respect in verses 7 through 11. And we're going to see in this point that rather than grasping for honor from people, we should live humbly and care only about what God thinks of us. So receiving respect. Let's look at the previous context because that's going to help us understand what Jesus says in that first parable. So looking to verses 1 through 6, Jesus had been invited to dinner by a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees. And remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time, uh, the Jewish religious leaders. They knew a lot about the Bible, Old Testament law. They also had lots of other laws that, that they had created And a dinner invitation, you know, we would hear about that, and normally we would think, hey, that's that's kind of a nice thing to do. But when we look more closely, actually it's pretty clear that this Pharisee was trying to trap Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees generally didn't like Jesus very much. They were usually jealous of his popularity, and they wanted to get him in trouble with Rome. So we see that they're unfriendly from verse 1. If you look at verse 1, it says, "...they were watching him carefully." So he had come into the dinner party, and all the Pharisees' eyes were on Jesus. They were looking for him to make a misstep so that they could pounce. But then a man with dropsy comes in. Now, dropsy is an old name for edema, which is a modern medical condition as well. It's a swelling condition where your body retains too much fluid. And there's different causes, um, many possible underlying causes, but depending on where the swelling is, it could be deadly. Potentially. Uh, so if someone has edema often, uh, you could tell just by looking at them, their arms or their legs or their face would be swollen. So it was probably clear that this guy had some sort of medical condition going on. Now it seems kind of weird. This is all the hoity-toity Pharisees, but there's this man who's clearly sick who's at the party. We don't know whether he wandered in. It's possible that the Pharisees invited him on purpose as sort of a plant to try to get Jesus to, you know, that compassionate Jesus, he's going to see somebody who needs healing and we'll catch him. He'll do it on the Sabbath and he'll get in trouble. It's possible that's what they were doing. But they didn't bank on Jesus' incisive questions. If you look at verse 3, Jesus points out, hey, you know, there's actually no law from the Bible that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. You Pharisees should know that if you're experts in the law, And on top of that, in verse 5, he says, hey, you're pretty hard-hearted if you don't want me to heal this guy. Wouldn't you help even an animal if he got in trouble on the Sabbath? You'd help your son, you'd help an animal. So Jesus, as he does, he's not a respecter of persons in the sense he doesn't change what he's going to do depending on what people say about him. He heals the guy and, and dismisses him. So this context helps us understand that This is a hostile group. This is a hostile group in which Jesus is speaking these parables. But he still wants to teach them. He's still ministering to them, and we're going to see that. So let's go to verse 7 then. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So what did Jesus see? He saw the people at dinner, and they were scrambling to get the best seat, the place of honor. So back then, in dinner parties at uh, a rich person's house like this, there would have been multiple tables set up in a big room, and they would have been arranged in a U, kind of a square U shape. And the most honorable position, the best seat in the house, so to speak, was right in the middle of the U, the bottom of the U. So how close you were to that best spot kind of reflected your social standing. So people were gunning for that spot or for the spots near that bottom of the U. Now, I understand this might seem uh, weird to us. I can tell you that when I show up at I don't know we were at Texas Roadhouse recently, uh, I wasn't thinking too much about where I should sit uh, at the restaurant. but there are there are situations right where where you sit matters, even in our modern culture, and the one that comes to mind for me is wedding receptions, right? Um, maybe you were the bride or the groom who was. Agonizing over the seating arrangements. Anybody? You're not raising your hands. I know, I know you're out there. Um, that was us, too. Uh, you know, asking questions like, okay, should we just do that little uh, bride and groom table? Or should we sit with our parents because that's what they would want? Or should we sit with our wedding party and our friends because that's what we would want? Um, what should we do? And then you've got a bunch of relatives that you were required to invite, right? Obscure aunties and uncles from overseas, maybe that you've never met before, uh, but they need to be honored. So where do you seat them? You know, so we, we do have an understanding of places of honor, uh, in something like a dinner reception. But now imagine, imagine if that wedding was open seating, kind of crazy, huh? People are going to be sitting down depending on, I don't know, depending on their their perceived relationship with you. You know, I can imagine some of those obscure aunties and uncles, they'd be trying to get a seat next to the bride and groom, right? Because they want to chat you up the whole night. So Jesus observes these leaders, and they're basically doing that. They're jockeying for position. They're trying to get the best spot in the house. The issue, what was going on, though, was honor. It was a situation of honor. We've already used that word today, but we need to dig in a little bit more, because honor was very important uh, in their culture back then. We kind of need to get sand in our sandals, so to speak, and walk a mile in the shoes of the people of Judea to understand how big a deal honor was. It plays a more prominent role, or it played a more prominent role in their culture than it does in ours. So in the ancient world, honor was more about social estimation than personal self-assessment. Does that make sense? Social estimation, what other people say about you, rather than your self-esteem. Honor was about what other people said about you. One person explained it this way. Honor is a person's public reputation, and that constitutes their identity. So you see that? It's their reputation, and basically their public reputation equals their identity in society. So it was about what other people said about you. That's what honor was about. There's another thing we need to understand is that honor was a zero-sum game back then. Meaning, if one person was going to gain an honor, somebody else had to lose honor. It was competitive. If you snag a place of honor at the table, for example, that means nobody else can get that seat by default, right? So if you gain honor there, that means everybody else is losing a little bit of honor. There's only so much honor to go around. So almost every social interaction, actually, other than with your family or your closest friends, was an opportunity to gain honor or to lose honor. And people challenged each other for honor. And, and it's a little bit off topic, but, but not really. If you read the Gospels, there's honor confrontations happening all the time. Basically, any time a Pharisee or a Sadducee comes up and asks Jesus a question, they're generally not innocent questions. They're loaded questions. They're, they're questions where they're challenging him They're trying to see, do you have a response to my stumper question? And if you don't have a response, then I win, and I get honor at your expense. But of course, what usually happens is that Jesus has the best response and uh, the Pharisees or whoever are silenced and the crowd is all laughing and happy that they, that Jesus won the honor confrontation. So that actually happened in the first verses. It's kind of why I wanted to read it. Verses one through six, there's honor dynamics going on there too. Jesus's responses And what happens? The Pharisees can't reply twice. So there's honor dynamics going on here. So honor came from what society said about you, and it was a limited commodity. And their people are always challenging each other for honor. The more honor you had, the more worth you had. Doesn't that sound like kind of crazy? Like to have to think constantly about what other people might say or do to worry about how to respond so as not to lose honor and for all that to have a direct effect on how you view your own worth sounds oppressive sounds suffocating but it also sounds a little familiar doesn't it is our world really that different It may feel foreign thinking about dinner parties and stuff, but really not much has changed. We still care so much about honor. We don't use the word. Maybe we use other words like respect, but we care about it a lot. And it's everywhere in our modern society, even within the church. I mean, think of us or think about how many of us are, are consumed with what other people think of us. We even have a Christianese kind of term to go with it. People pleasing. I struggle with people pleasing. I'm a people pleaser. This is a struggle that we have within the church. We try to present just the right image of ourselves to our family, our coworkers, our church members to avoid criticism from them. We're so, we're so sensitive to others' assessments of us. Even, for example, at work, you know, what were those coworkers whispering about? I know I used to think about that when I worked in an office. Why'd they stop talking when I walked in the room? Or why does my mother-in-law give me that look when I say that certain thing? Now, why do we think so much about other people's opinions of us? That's the question. What are we so afraid of? Well, maybe we're judging our own self-worth based on their assessment of us. And many of us are, are constantly performing. And maybe we don't even realize it. And this comes out clearly in social media, I think. Why do you post that particular picture of yourself and not another one? I remember seeing um, the Facebook of this guy that I had met, and uh, the most recent uploads on his uh, Facebook was like 30 pictures of himself, 30 selfies, 30 pictures of him in front of a mirror wearing a suit, and the only difference between these pictures was slightly different angles to his face. And he had the same, like, plastered-on smile the whole time. And I laughed because it was creepy. (laughs) He was trying to find his best angle. But we do the same thing, right? We just have the sense to delete the other 29 pictures, right? (laughs) I've read stories about how young women, even those in their late teens, spend 50 hours or more on Instagram, curating an image of themselves, living for those likes and shares and followers. And you know, if you get big enough on social media, people will start giving you free stuff and it's just kind of a perpetuating cycle, but it changes how you look at the world. The only thing you're thinking about is your reputation before other people. You go to the beach not to enjoy the beach, but to snap a few Instagram-worthy pictures. Often we care too much about what other people think about us. And who doesn't get mentioned? God. We don't care at all about what God thinks of us. We're concerned to keep up appearances and to put on the performance. So I contend that the tendency to grasp for honor and respect is alive and well today. It's alive and well. So we have to ask, who are you tempted to perform for? Who are you tempted to perform for? Whose opinion matters too much to you? What crowd are you trying to please? We each need to consider that question. Jesus invites us to think about that. But then Jesus sees the situation and he decides to respond with telling a story, a parable. So remember, a parable is really just a story that's used to teach or an analogy that's used to teach. It always has a purpose. It always has a purpose. And often, you have to think about them carefully to really understand uh, where Jesus is going with it. So that's what we're going to try to do now. So let's look at verses 8 through 9. Follow along with me as I read. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So Jesus is saying that there are dangers in seeking the place of honor. The danger, at least in the story, is that you might get kicked out of that seat. If someone more important than you shows up, then you're going to have to get up in front of everyone and shamefully take the lowest seat because all the other ones have filled up. So for them, back then, in that honor-shame society, this was like the worst of all possible worlds. This is the worst situation. Or super cringe, maybe. But let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, Move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. At first, doesn't it kind of sound like Jesus is just giving us savvy social advice? It kind of sounds like he's saying rather than grasp directly at honor, you should be sneaky about how you get it. Choose the low spot so that somebody comes along and moves you up higher, you end up in the higher spot, right? But is that really what he's saying? No. Let's look at verse 11. There's a very important word in there. For. It's the first word of the verse. That word for means that verse 11 is the reason for verse 10. It's the reason why Jesus says choose the lowest spot. So Jesus is saying you don't seek the low place so that you can gain more honor ultimately. That's not your highest priority. You choose the low place because anyone who lives to be exalted or honored will one day be humbled. He says in verse 11, everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, guaranteed. And in contrast, Opting out of the honor-seeking game is actually the path to greatness. Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The thing that really makes you honored and honorable to God is humility. Humility. Now, Jesus doesn't mention the kingdom of God explicitly here. He doesn't say those words The topic comes up in the next paragraph that we're not looking at today, but he's talking about the kingdom of God here. And if you're familiar with the parables of Jesus, you know that most of those are about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is basically God's rule and reign over his people. And the kingdom of God operates on God's values and by his rules. And all of us as Christians, all Christians are citizens of that kingdom, talk a lot about that in Philippians, especially. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom kind of erupted into the present age when Jesus came the first time. And you could tell it was happening because of his teaching, because of his healing, because of his uh, casting out demons. Nothing had ever happened like that in the history of the world. There were scattered healings here and there, but nobody was doing healings and casting out demons like Jesus was. It was the beginning of the kingdom of God. So it came in, it erupted into the present age, but it's not yet fully established. It will be fully and finally established when Jesus, the king, returns at his second coming. So what's Jesus saying here? He's giving us kingdom values. He's saying that in the kingdom of God and for all Christians, a different honor principle operates. It's different in the kingdom of God than it is in the rest of the world. You don't get honor by grasping for it. You don't get honor by taking it from somebody else. You get honor by humbling yourself, by forsaking the grasping. And the honor that you get doesn't come from people. It comes from God. At the right time, God will exalt and honor you. So Jesus is saying that if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you should live by its values even now. Seek the lowest place, not because you're hoping to get moved up, but because God loves humility. Seek the lowest place because God loves humility. And sure, it's possible you might receive honor from people when you seek the lowest place, but it doesn't matter. That's not what's important. Earthly honor is basically... Indifferent. Take it or leave it. How different that is from the way that we normally operate, right? What truly matters is for God to exalt you on that day when the kingdom of God is fully established. That's what matters. And later, the Apostle Peter expresses this idea in 1 Peter 5.6. It's very clear that he's been listening to Jesus. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, so that's been a lot, and, you know, you may be saying, you know, okay, this makes sense, the this uh, pathway to honor that you're talking about in God's kingdom, that kind of makes sense to me, but maybe, maybe you have a question. Here's the question that came to my mind studying this passage. Maybe you're saying, hold the phone. Wait a minute. Isn't it wrong to want to be honored at all? Don't we talk about giving all glory to God? Well, yes, and I think this is an important clarification. We do want to give all glory to God, but there is a kind of honor that only God can give. There's an honor that God can give to somebody else that magnifies his glory rather than detracting from it. There's an honor that God can give that is not competitive with his honor or glory. And this honor is simply the honor due to a faithful servant. Every true Christian, I think, longs to hear the Lord say what he says in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. I think we understand intuitively that this is an honoring statement. What an honor it would be at the end of your life for the Lord to look at you and, you know, as you trust in him for your salvation, for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He would be bestowing honor on you as a faithful servant. And that doesn't detract from his honor or glory. It magnifies it. And we see this kind of thing even in Revelation as well. If you've read Revelation 4, the elders have crowns that they've been given by God. And what do they do with those crowns? They throw them on, on the floor. They cast them down before the throne of God. And that's one of their acts of praise to him. So it's a good thing to want this kind of honor. And Jesus is saying that humility is the way. Not grasping at respect, but leaving that to God. Stop thinking about ourselves and simply live humbly in a way that glorifies God. So in what areas of your life do you need to stop thinking about yourself and just live humbly? Where do you need to stop seeking honor from people and just leave your reputation to God and care more about what God says than what other people say. Well, I thought of a couple of examples. Maybe you're one of those people who gets angry when your children disrespect you. Anybody else like that? Maybe you think, I'm the authority in this house. God says you're supposed to respect me. You might be thinking when they disobey. But often we as parents can demand honor and obedience from our children, not for God's sake and not for their good, but because of our own desire to be respected and even to feel valued, to feel like a good parent, a parent whose kid listens to them. Now, if that's you, you need to repent of that honor-grasping attitude and seek to love your children humbly and patiently for their good. It'll change how you parent. Maybe you're someone who uses your words to get what you want. Oh, no, I wouldn't call it flattery, you might say. That's such a strong word. I'm just selective. I'm just selective with what I say and what I don't say and how I say it. But, friend, aren't you selective because you're trying to advance your own standing? You're trying to get what you want. I remember a guy uh, that I was friends with a long time ago, um, and I was mentoring him, and I enjoyed spending time with him. I liked him. But when we were together, he was always so profuse with compliments, too profuse, like uncomfortably too much, uncomfortably too much in terms of compliments. He would go on and on about how insightful my advice was, didn't always listen to me. He would go on and on about how compelling my Bible studies were and my sermons. He laughed so hard at my jokes, which is, you know, immediately suspicious, and again, I, he's, I do believe he's a Christian brother, but I think he was just very concerned that I had a positive impression of him. And whether it was intentional or not, the way that that desire came out was through flattery, through trying to influence me with his words. So do you, too, try to use your words to grasp at respect from other people? Or do you do the opposite? Do you use your words and your tone of voice and your body language to take honor away from other people, implicitly dishonoring them and exalting yourself at their expense. Well, brothers and sisters, the one thread running through all of this is that we're thinking too much about ourselves. The honor game is profoundly self-centered, and that's why Jesus invites us to humility. C.S. Lewis once said, a really humble man will not be thinking about humility, actually, He will not be thinking about himself at all. And that's what humility is about. Thinking about others, not thinking about yourself. Humility is the opposite of self-centeredness. If we're humble, we're freed to live for God and to serve other people. Instead of trying to take from other people our sense of worth or respect or whatever it may be, we are freed to give to them and freed to love them. So Jesus teaches us through this parable that the only court of opinion that matters is God's. He wants to change how we think about respect and honor. He wants us to desire honor from God, not from people. And he invites us into humility, which is the opposite of grasping for honor. That brings us to our second and the second parable of this section. Point number two, receiving repayment receiving repayment, in verses 12 through 14. And here Jesus is saying that we must leave all thoughts of repayment to God and just be generous like God is. So let's read read that together. Follow along with me as I read verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. As if that first story wasn't enough of a bombshell, Jesus turns and targets the guy who invites him. How's that, Jesus? So what? what is Jesus saying? Let's not miss how crazy this sounds. Jesus says in the parable, at least, don't invite your friends and family to dinner. So friends, did any of you have your family over for Christmas? You need to repent. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus isn't giving an absolute prohibition here. Remember, he's telling a story. We know from scripture that he ate with his friends. He hung out with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and ate with the disciples as well. So he's not giving an absolute prohibition here. He's making a point. he's trying to get our attention. So what's the point? Why is he making this shocking statement? He doesn't just say, don't invite friends and family. What else does he say? Don't invite your rich neighbors. The thing in common is that all these people could repay you. Your hospitality could be repaid. Now back then in the ancient world, there was an ethic of reciprocity. An ethic of reciprocity. And that's just a fancy way of saying that every gift needed to be repaid. It wasn't just expected to be repaid. It needed to be repaid. If you did not reciprocate somebody's dinner invitation, for example, after a sufficient amount of time, you were ostracized. Everyone would find out that that person doesn't give. You would be lower than low. You'd be shamed. So repaying a gift was a requirement in that culture. You know, maybe there are some of us who are thinking, yeah, that would be nice. There's some people that I invite over that never invited me back over. Wouldn't that be nice if they had to invite me over? Well, the problem with the ethic of reciprocity is that in that culture, you'd only invite over people who could invite you back. Or you'd only invite people who you wanted to repay you. But who would never get invited? The people that Jesus mentions here, those who couldn't repay, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, most of these would have been homeless. These people would never receive the hospitality of a dinner invitation because they had no way to pay back the kindness. But Jesus is going to take the lid off of this social convention and show what's really going on. Because if you only do kindness to those who can pay it back to you, who are you thinking about? Who's number one? yourself. You're ultimately just thinking about yourself. So that social convention, that ethic of reciprocity was profoundly self-centered. Textbook selfishness. Pastor R. Kent Hughes comments on this section, and I think it's helpful. He says, reciprocation as a primary goal is the product of an immense self-focus. If we do not reach out to others who cannot benefit us, we must ask ourselves if we are true believers. A proud me-first lifestyle, no matter how deftly hidden, indicates that we are not part of the kingdom. A selfish, quid pro quo social life is not a kingdom life. End quote. Now, I've been decluttering lately. I've talked with some of you about this. Some of you know that uh, decluttering is not my strong suit. Um, but we're trying to get rid of things. I hold on to things far too long. And I finally got rid of a tablet computer that I got 12 years ago. Um, it was a good tablet at the time. I haven't known where the charger was for the last four years or so. Uh, it's basically a brick. So finally that brick is out of my house. But, you know, it, it was a good tablet at the time, but it's not one that I bought. It was given to me. It was an award, actually. Now, back then, I was working in internet marketing. I was working in search engine marketing. I was making those ads on Google that show up at the top, the ones that you try not to click all the time. That was me. You're welcome. Um, And we were pretty good at it in our department. We were doing pretty well with these ads. And we did so well that Google took notice. So Google sent a representative down from San Jose to San Diego, where I was living at the time. They came to our office Gave us little certificates of recognition about how awesome we were. And they also gave each of us in the department a tablet, which was pretty cool, like a $300 value or something like that at the time. Now, why did Google give me a tablet? I guarantee you, it wasn't out of the kindness of their corporate heart. They gave us gifts because they wanted us to repay them by continuing to use their platform. Now, Google makes tons of money off of advertisers. That's one of their primary revenue streams. They wanted repayment. You didn't see Google giving tablets to randos at our office. They weren't handing them out on the street. It was only for people who affected their bottom line. It was about repayment. We need to examine our so-called kindness and hospitality and service and gift giving. We need to ask ourselves, what are we really aiming at? When we serve Are we thinking about God and others, or are we thinking about ourselves? And of course, it's mixed sometimes, but think about it this way. Who are we primarily thinking about? We're primarily thinking about God and others, or are we primarily thinking about ourselves? Modern society tells us to cut people out of our lives if they don't help us, or if they're detrimental to us, people who are toxic or leeches or whatever it may be but there's an implicit ethic of reciprocity in there, right? Why is it that every relationship needs to be mutually beneficial? Why do you need to be repaid? But this is not the biblical way. The church father, Ambrose of Milan, observed 1,600 years ago that there is a greedy disposition in those who would be rewarded for hospitality. There's a greedy disposition in those who would be rewarded for hospitality. So if you want to be rewarded For your hospitality, you're greedy. So Jesus, what's the alternative? Help us out, Jesus. We'll look at verse 13. Jesus gives us the alternative in verse 13. He says, invite those excluded people, the people who can't repay you, and what's going to happen? You will be blessed. You'll have true happiness, the true life that God wants for his people. And why? Because, because they cannot repay you. Jesus is saying it's good to be generous without thinking about repayment. But notice that at the end of verse 14, he does promise repayment, actually. It's just in the future, and it comes from God. Interesting how this one rhymes with the previous parable, right? He's promising repayment when Christ returns and when believers are resurrected. So he's talking here about heavenly rewards And heavenly rewards uh, may be familiar to some of us, may be unfamiliar to others, but actually it's a concept that shows up a lot in Scripture, shows up a lot in the teaching of Jesus. And and these rewards from God are just good things that God is going to give to us in the next life because of our faithfulness and obedience now. But it's really important to understand that these rewards that we're talking about are totally separate from salvation, totally separate from the issue of Salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we've been reminded through our Theological Foundations class. Come after the service, by the way. Um, but salvation is by grace. It's not salvation by works in any way. That's not what I'm saying here. But at the same time, we need to notice what Scripture's saying. God is promising reward for good deeds that we've done in faith. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what we want to know, maybe. He doesn't tell us what these rewards are but I think that it's vague for a reason because I think he knows how prone we would be to thinking about the reward instead of loving him and loving people. So all he does is promise the repayment. As maybe some of us would say with our children, don't worry, trust me. I'll get you something good. My kids always want to know exactly what it is. What is exactly the gift that you're going to give me? But the Lord says to us, trust him. I'll repay you. So, in effect, what he's saying too is we're not supposed to think too much about the repayment. We're supposed to leave that part to God. Focus on the people in front of you. Focus on him. Just be generous and hospitable. Jesus is calling us to be prodigal, prodigal with our resources without thought of repayment. So, I know, I know I'm a pastor, uh, and I should have known this before, but until really recently, Meaning, uh, 2023, I did not know what prodigal meant. Uh, I thought prodigal meant wandering or something. Because that's what the prodigal son does, right? He leaves and he goes and does his own thing. But actually, prodigal means extravagantly spending your resources. It means extravagant spending. If you know the story, the prodigal son did that too. That's why he's called prodigal. He spent all his money on bad things. Um, but what God is calling us to is to be prodigal on good things. To be generous to share, to be hospitable, and to leave thought of repayment to God. And in living this way, Jesus is inviting us to be like God. He's inviting us to be truly godly, godlike. This is how God treats us. And we saw it in the scripture uh, scripture reading earlier, but I want us to turn there. Let's turn to Luke 6. Luke six thirty two through 36. Because we should see uh, the connection here between generosity and being a son of God and being like God. Luke 6.32 is where we're going to start. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Listen to that. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and you will be sons of the Most High. Live like this, and you'll be living like God. This is a life of generosity, a life that gives grace. This is a godly life, a godlike, godly life. And it's so easy to think of our lives in economic terms, isn't it? Sometimes the productivity gurus encourage us to do this, uh, but it's not really the way the Bible encourages us to think about our lives. We can think about wanting a good return on investment for all of our time, all of our money, even our hospitality. But while productivity is good, I need to be productive, more productive in my life if this kind of thinking leads us to ignore people who wouldn't be a good return on investment, then we've got a huge problem because Jesus calls us here to let go of that repayment mindset, let go of the tit for tat fairness mentality and entrust repayment to God. He's promised to reward us. It's going to be better. I'm sure than anything that we can imagine, but he doesn't want us to dwell on that very much. He wants us to just imitate God's liberality and generosity and be godly in this way. So as we think about applying this parable to our lives and these principles to our lives, this passage should lead us not to skip over the categories of people that Jesus mentioned. We don't want to spiritualize this too quickly. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind are still with us. You probably know people who could potentially be described this way, uh, And often these people, many of them brothers and sisters, uh, could be described as needy. Just because of their condition, they have lots of needs. Whether it's help, whether it's money, etc. But God wants us to give to them just like we would give to anybody else. God wants us to be generous. It's so easy for the world to pass over these sorts of people. We Christians can't. But this principle also applies Within the church, even beyond the, uh, immediate literal group that Jesus is talking about. Because oftentimes repayment ideas can creep into our own just friendships, right? Even with fellow church members. Now maybe you don't make lunch plans with that particular person or that person because they're from a different age group from you. Because, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know. What are we going to talk about? It's going to be awkward. If you're thinking about that, aren't you just thinking about social repayment? Do you need social repayment to spend time with that person? You're focused on yourself. Maybe you avoid talking to that person who lost his job a few months ago because you're afraid he's going to ask you for help. But if this is you, you're thinking about repayment. You're not thinking about imitating the extravagant generosity of our God. Maybe you avoid that mom because her kids are wild and you don't want them tearing up your house. But what's more important, loving your fellow church member or maintaining a nice house? Now, hear me me correctly. I'm not laying down a new law here. I'm also not saying we should give all of our money away and not take care of our families. No, no. Uh, scripture is clear. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We need to take care of those that are close to us. I'm also not saying we need to be gullible and just give to anyone who claims to have a need, anyone who comes up to us. But instead, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a larger way of life. He's trying to help us catch this way of life that he's offering to us. He's not putting us under a new law, but he's inviting us into an open-handed life. He's inviting us into an open-handed life of generosity, of godlike generosity and selflessness, and to just trust that the Lord is going to take care of us. So let's bring it all together, just as we're wrapping up. So first, in that first point, we saw that Jesus challenges our ideas about respect. The problem is that we demand honor from people and we're going to do almost anything to get it. But instead, Jesus calls us to opt out of the honor game. He shows us that the key to life for a citizen of the kingdom is humility and that the only one whose opinion matters is God. And then in the second parable, we saw that Jesus challenges our ideas about repayment. Instead of only giving to those who can give back to us, he invites us to imitate God and give generously. He calls us to stop asking what's in it for me and instead trust God to reward us and take care of us. Do you realize that um, Jesus perfectly exemplifies both of these approaches to life? He's the one who, as Paul says in Philippians 2, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to the honor that was rightly his. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. What? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the perfect example of humility, generosity, and selflessness. But he wasn't just an example, right? His story didn't stop at the cross or at the grave. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And if you keep reading in Philippians 2 that's where Paul goes. He says therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the lord, he is the king and his kingdom will soon be fully and finally established. So we need to ask ourselves Are we with him, or are we against him? You know, by default, all of us are against him. All of us are his enemies, by default, in our sinful nature. We disobey his laws, and one of the things we do is what we've been talking about much of this afternoon. We've sought honor from people rather than the approval of God. But did you know that Jesus actually talks explicitly about this, and he says that self-seeking attitude stands in the way of true belief. He says in John 5.44 to the Pharisees, how can you believe? How can you believe? How can you trust in me when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We've all been desiring to be king of our own little castle, performing for people instead of thinking about God exalting ourselves instead of submitting to him as the true king. We've been selfish, giving only to get. And for all of this, we deserve punishment. It's sin. We deserve the punishment of hell. But amazingly and mercifully, the Lord has allowed this time before the second coming of Christ where his enemies, meaning you and me, have the opportunity to switch sides and join him. So if you've never submitted to Christ, repenting of your sins and placing your faith in him, he's calling you to do that right now. Embrace God's grace, believe in Christ, and be saved. Though Jesus is in heaven now, he's high and lifted up, he will never turn away a repentant sinner. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 6, 37, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to him. Come to him. If you've never done it before, come to him. Humble yourself and bow your knee to King Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, we need to hear this gospel too. We must bow our knee daily to our good, humble and exalted King. We must trust him daily. And then, Our Lord invites us to a life of true blessedness like we've been looking at today. A life that cares only about his opinion, that thinks not of ourselves, and that imitates the prodigal generosity of our loving God. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We thank you that even though we were sinners and we still struggle with sin you came lived a perfect life that we couldn't live died on the cross for us and then rose from the dead for our justification Lord thank you for your mercy thank you for your love and your grace and thank you that you show us the way of of the good life, of true happiness, of true blessedness, a life of humility, a life of generosity, a life of selflessness. Lord, I think I speak for all the believers in the room when we say we want this kind of life. We want to be like this. But Lord, we can't just try harder. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to work on us to grow these fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Please, Lord, we help or we pray that you would help us, that we would live in such a way as to honor you and praise you. Lord, I pray also uh, for any in this room who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would examine themselves, examine their hearts, think about why they haven't submitted to you, uh, that they would get those questions answered, and that they would ultimately humble themselves uh, before you so that you can raise them up and so that. Uh, you could save them. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.